What's going on, guys? Mitch from RespectMyRegion.com coming back with another episode of the RMR Podcast today, joined by special guest Kenny Pleasant of Pleasant Trees, opening up here in Washington State. How are you doing today, Kenny? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, it's, it's rare. I think I, I mean, I didn't say too much before this about this, but it's very rare for me to have guests from the home state, especially your stores opening up in, in the city in which I reside uh, of Everett, man. You got got the store i think you said grand opening is it coming this month or, or next month uh the first second week of august second week of august so coming coming right around the corner just getting in the game but i know you've been a been an entrepreneur and in, in around the space for quite a while from a couple of different sides man so i'd love to, i'd love to get you know the first question i always ask people on the show is their origin story with cannabis whether that's personal professional however you feel vulnerable sharing is, is up to you but i'm kind of curious your, your origin story around cannabis yeah. Um, so growing up in the hood, obviously, it was uh, a commodity, right? We pretty much everybody smoked weed. And as, you know, tradition had it, I just believe I started, I smoked first time around 12 or 13. And I remember actually a time in my early teens thinking, I don't think I would ever not smoke weed. It was such a part of my day to day. Um, but then when I got older and had uh, kids, I actually did not smoke for over 10 to 15 years and um, focused on building my real estate business and career. And, and I actually had a different opinion of it at the time, um, which I can share if you'd like to know. But mm -hmm. um, I then got involved with my business partner, Michael, who was getting into the industry um, from the liquor stores. And we had met um, because I was managing the property where his liquor store was at. And he talked about it and I was vehemently opposed to it. I'm like, there's no way I'm doing real estate that would be, you know, he'll still have the negative stigma. And I couldn't even imagine having that public um, domain of marijuana when it, before it was uh, legalized in Seattle. And so, um, yeah, my thought process behind why I was opposed to it basically stemmed from um, America's uh, relationship with black people and how there's always been something um, from slavery to reconstruction and, you know, the whole story we've all heard and these different plagues and i felt like uh marijuana could be the next thing and not to say so much that it would be but i was suspicious of it mm. because it was rampant in the black community and i just feel like we're at a place where we need to be very aware have a heightened sense of awareness of what we're doing what's going on around us and the world is moving at an exponential pace and if um, I always used to relate it back to Cat Williams doing a stand-up, and he said, hungry, happy, sleepy. And that summed it up, in my opinion, at the time. Uh, let me clarify that I, I have changed my opinion since then. Um, but he talked about hungry, happy, sleepy, and I was, you know, under the premise that if the world is moving at exponential pace, technology, um, the wealth gap, all these different things that are putting uh, Blacks, African-Americans so far behind that it's not a time for us to 
sorry about that. It's not the best time for us to be hungry, happy, and sleepy. We need to be aware, focused, and, you know, participating in this exponential growth that we're seeing in the world. So um, that was my then opinion. That's inter it's interesting to see that, to go from obviously being a consumer, uh, uh, you know, consuming the plant to, to that, which I totally understand, you know, considering the the state of the country, not just the, the current state, but the state of, of the country in terms of those race relations. And I, I totally understand and, and respect that. And it's also interesting to see that that shift in perspective, perception. What do, you, what do you feel like was that kind of shift towards away from like, again, it's not yours. Yours wasn't, it doesn't sound like it was like a negative or all oh, cannabis is bad. You were just like, yo, this is something that could potentially dull, dull, dull the senses or the smarts, if you will, a little bit in a world where we need to be super sharp. But what what changed from that to kind of kind of flipping the script on on cannabis for you? Um, so as I mentioned, I met Michael Baraki's uh, owner, Kush Twenty One person. I actually bought my store from, um, but we became really good friends. And as he was building his you know empire, I was right there alone with him. We would meet, and he gave me a different vantage point of the customers. And a lot of the customers were not what I assumed. Um, they were middle-aged, older. They suffered from, you know, anxiety or, you know, cancer. Um, you know, all these different uh, medicinal uh, uses that uh, the customer base um, was using marijuana for. And it, you know, as I dug into it and really started to see the uh, medical benefits all of a sudden i'm like yeah actually and funny enough being in the stores and around the bud tenders and kind of helping out i remember having trouble sleeping and they were like here try this and so i'm like okay you know tried it after you know 10 15 years of not smoking next thing you know i'm sleeping like a baby and then um, going through some issues with my wife, and I don't know if you call it middle-age uh, middle middle crisis or renaissance period, whatever, but having you know a sense of anxiety. And so they uh, provided something that took the edge off because I went, like our customers you know, now, and I said, hey, I'm not so much looking to be stoned, intoxicated, but I would like something to take the edge off and in common fashion they provided something that was amazing it was like magic right so then i believe it provides me a great um sort of perspective to share with others because you know my it obviously i had the recreational side as a kid where i did a lot of things that i regret but just being someone that has you know an opposition to it open-minded tried it and now i can say okay i see all sides of the um, product and how it is consumed and viewed does that make sense absolutely no abs absolutely and i think that's one of the biggest things i think around the stigma for and 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 i think like for years again is isn't necessarily an opposition of like oh this is a terrible thing or it's like against my religion or whatever when when we think of the stigma against cannabis sometimes we think about this like big bad conservative like force their views on everyone like that's the only there's a lot of people that have varying stances of 
why cannabis may be right for them or, or their, their thoughts and opinions on it. Um, and I think once, once, like you said, kind of the veil was lifted of looking inside the industry of seeing like, wow, so many people use this plant for so many different reasons in so many different ways. Sure. There's a ton of people that recreationally use cannabis for, you know, some people, you know, be dabbing. They, they're trying to get gone. They're trying to go to space and and maybe forget about something, maybe just zone out on some video games. What You know, that's their own prerogative. But there's a ton of people out here, whether they're using topicals or CBD or or low dose THC or cancer patients, like so many people use cannabis for so many reasons. And I think once we get once someone gets exposed to that with an open mind and sees how wide the use case is, and how little the risk is, how how little the downside is, because there is, you know, if you're smoking, there there is a health risk of that. It doesn't get necessarily talked about enough, but there's a health health risk of that. There is a risk of putting any sort of substance in your body, um, but the risk is very very low compared to the, the potential benefits and the use cases around this plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm okay with that as well. Um, I did speak on the medicinal benefits, but if a person, you know, we, we tend to have very strong opinions based on our point of view or our experience, right? But how can we judge someone else when they're going through some sort of tragedy or some sort of life experiences that the marijuana allows them to have a, a sense or a period of peace and, you know, like just serenity, then they should be allowed that, right? I. I can't say my life is great and anyone that smokes weed is a loser and, you know, it's, it's bad. That's, you know, that would be someone else's point of view. Right. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, if I have something going on and I need to get high and it allows me to have some peace and escape from this reality, then you should be able to do that. Right. Absolutely. 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 How how did building, you know, in real estate, right? Like real estate is one of those industries where there, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily get talked about a lot. But for me, having partaked in the real estate industry, it's a highly regulated business. You know, when you look at, at, a, at, a, at a county, at a city, at a state level, there's all sorts of regulations and laws and not just on zoning, but even advertising and, and certain things that you can and can't say about properties. And it's a very localized industry as well. When you're looking for buyers and sellers and operating in a particular area, you're looking at a very localized pool, much like owning a dispensary. Your, you know, your consumer base is very much local to that. So what, what are some of those experiences you feel like from real estate that are, that are going to transfer over or help transfer over to this, this, the cannabis space? Um, yeah, it's a good question. There's a few parallels, I, I believe, uh, the main one is being in a crowded space, right? Everyone, for the most part, knows at least one real estate agent. And then how do you compete and stand out amongst that, right? So I, I feel like that's very similar because there's in Seattle, Washington, or Everett, the most of the state, there's weed shops everywhere, right? And so I think it's... Uh, similar to how you have to find ways to differentiate differentiate yourself and stand out um, amongst the others. And then there's always going to be the 80-20 um, where, you know, 80% of the business is done by 20% of the people. I, that's the same in real estate. And I believe it's the same in cannabis. Um, but the one skill or thing that I feel will 
add much value to and help me stand apart is the systems and processes. I've always been big on that, automating, um, delegating, using virtual um, help when I can, but just putting really good technology systems and processes in place and uh, managing people, uh, getting very experienced at, I can't say good because it's, it's the biggest challenge I believe in most industries is managing people, right? But just all the years of training and all the books and um, information I consumed about leadership and um, empowering others, I think that I learned that all too well in real estate. Yeah, real estate is one of those industries is, is an entrepreneurial minded industry. You know, anyone in it, whether you're an agent, you have your own you know, singular agent, you have your own business. I know yourself owning a brokerage is you operate as an agent. You got to manage other agents. You know, there's a, a lot of different hats, a lot of different people you have to manage. And, and again, my experience with real estate shows that anybody in your position is is a, in a never ending pursuit of mentorship, coaching skills mm -hmm. refining their own process and systems and process it's not something that like you said you're like i don't get great at it it's experience you keep yeah. you keep going you don't get to a place like yeah i'm good it's a it's a never-ending pursuit mm -hmm. one of the things that i believe most new agents and maybe even the uh, consumers may not see is that every single time you close a transaction you fire yourself and it's back to mm -hmm regenerating new business, new clients, or following up with old leads. And it does not allow for complacency. If you take three months off with no work, you have no money coming in. Um, and so for me, it provides something here. And I'm, I actually noticed it in my first couple of weeks here is that I have that same sort of, okay, the day is over. Okay, what about tomorrow? The week is over. The 4th of July sales over. You know, what's next? You know, the weekend is done, but it's for me always saying, okay, now that that's over, how are we continuing to uh, prospect and keep the pipeline full, right? That's the word I was looking for, but keeping that pipeline full and that's uh, stocking the shelves and all the other day-to-day um, -day things that you need to do to make sure that you have some money coming in next month after, you know, you sell out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so you said, I, I, you know, I know Michael personally. And so I know you said you, you met him through some real estate dealings and how, how that opened your, your realm. And I know when we spoke a, a week ago, you said you, you, you spent some time kind of just watching and, and learning under him. So I'm kind of curious how, how you, how you approach that and, and kind of what you did in that, in that period of just waiting and, and learning the game. Yes, good question. Um, so we, when he had the liquor store, we kind of we met, we talked briefly, and we found some commonalities in our entrepreneurial journeys at the time. And when he, we first, uh, first opened, I went and he said he was making a certain amount of money per month. And I was like, that's great. That's a little bit more than I'm making in real estate. Couple months later, we're meeting again. He said he was making three times that amount, and then uh, a few months later, he said he was making seven times that amount. Um, and I'll leave those numbers up for imagination. But at that moment, I said, "Okay, I'm in. I have to get into this business." 
and um, it's just part of my um, personal principles or values. Even my, my daughter said the other day, we mentioned it, and she said, I thought you don't like free stuff. We don't like free stuff. Because um, I've always taught them to despise free, right? That there's mm-hmm. always a catch. And so in coming to Michael, I did not, I wasn't going to work for him. Um, I didn't want anything for free. I'm sure he wasn't willing to give up anything for free. But I just had to, you know, be present and figure out my angle and how I can get into the business. So I stayed around and we figured out, um, you know, a few different things that I could do to help with the SOPs, the training, hiring, recruiting, um, did things like that on a contract basis for the uh, Kush 21 store, help it push it to um, multi-state. We ended up securing a license in uh, Illinois through that. And then when the store that I now own came up as um, something that they needed to liquidate, get rid of and sell it, and I told him that, no, I'll buy it. And he advised me over and over again, even close to closing it. He wanted to say, now, remember, I'm telling you, I don't think it's a good idea for you to buy this store. But I like a challenge and I flip I'm, I flip houses, rehab them. I'm in the middle of flipping one right now in Ohio. And so for me to renovate or take something and turn it around is I'm passionate about it, and I feel like, you know, I'm up for the challenge. And the worst that could happen is um, I really don't see a downside on it, right? I have a license that has uh, a tangible value to it. So to me, it was like, hey, I I, I weighed the upside, um, hedged for the downside, and said it thought it was a good deal. Like like a true real estate investor, right there. Look at the upside, hedge the downside. Yeah, <laughs> and that that's again, you know, being intimately familiar with that side of the market, right? Like real estate investing, it's all, it's all sort of a risk. But most people that are doing it got their spreadsheets, got their formula, got their model that they like to stick it in. And like you said, even if at the worst case, you have an asset that you know some really the worst case you got to liquidate but worst you got to hold on to it for a couple of years and just wait for that value yeah. to come around which i'm sure you're familiar with being in the real estate I've been there before yeah <laughs> gotta hold something for a little bit longer than you intended on holding it but you know that, that's life mm-hmm. right you can't plan for everything um what 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 point in your journey did you really start getting involved in real estate because I, I i'd read a little bit of one of the stories online how you kind of had a big sale i believe if i'm correct early in your career and then didn't really have much action after that and kind of had to, to stick it out and learn the game, like almost, you know, struck gold a little bit early, but then mm-hmm. had to had to figure it out. So I'm kind of curious a little bit of your, of your journey in real estate in terms of like the, the start and, and when you really found that that cadence and that pace. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always have to say that when I tell the story, it seems fascinating because of the things and the process that I, I would not sign up voluntarily for the things I did. It's hard to imagine, like, and it just it's just boils down to desperation or um, desire, right? So I um, I started actually in the downturn, the worst economic mm-hmm. downturn that, you know, most of us will see in our lifetime in 2008. And most people thought I was nuts. I remember even my uncle was like, do you watch the news? What do you mean you're getting into real estate? Um, 
and a lot of people were quitting. Um, and it was not to in most people that are logical, right? It was not the smartest thing to do. And on top to make it even worse is we, our first house, we were, um, we had a predatory lender. How about that? Mm. And so we bought a house in Lakewood that he told us we would get $50,000 cash when we close and it'll go up so much and so fast that we had a reverse AM loan. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Reverse mm -hmm. amortization loan. Basically, it works like this. Your monthly payment should be 2000 But because equity is increasing so much every single month, you only have to pay 1500 and the equity will recover your payment. Mm. Um, no longer a product that anyone offers. It was part of the whole frenzy. So I say all that to say that we moved to Lakewood. But when I decided to get into real estate, I wanted to be in where the money was because I was watching Million Dollar Listing. And I was like, I can do that. Those guys look cool. They drive great cars. And um, I was an iron worker at the time. So I hung my license in Bellevue. And it was an hour drive there and an hour drive back every single day. And to me, it was like one of those things where I just... I'm so blessed and humbled that for that experience because I never had read a book prior to that, but I stumbled across audiobooks mm. and I would listen to an audiobook an hour there and an hour um, back every day. And I remember going to appointments, I'd pull up and be so um, wrapped up in the book that I would just sit there like consuming this information that was, you know, fascinating to me because I had dropped out in eighth grade. So no formal education. And now I'm getting, you know, a master class in business, marketing, psychology, body language. I mean, I just went crazy and just consuming information. And so that first sale was in three months. And it just so happened to uh, be at an open house. A guy walked in, wanted to pay cash for a $1 million house. He sold his stock in MySpace. Yeah, he was a MySpace exec. Um, and um, so just, you know, the innate hustler or quality has always been in me. So I stayed there uh, four days a week for five hours consistently. And then this guy just walks in and he's like, I want to write my own contract. I'd never written a contract. And I'm like, hey, well, why would you do that when I'm an expert and I could do it for you? Um, went back to the office and asked someone how to write this contract for a million bucks. It closed in seven days and I made 33000 right? Um, and so that was like the hook. It kept me in. Had it not been for that, I would have quit in the next month or so. But I didn't sell a house for nine months after that. Mm -hmm. And it was the driving. And when I say drive an hour there, hour back, I would work for 14, 15 hours, sleep four or five, um, just really grinding it out because I just felt like, you know, I didn't really have much choice. Um, but it was that information on those drives back and forth where I really changed my entire life. Like I understood complex ideas and I remember having, listening to someone with a problem and in my mind, I had not really got to the point of confidence 
but I remember thinking I have the answer. I could solve that person's problem or, you know, I have what they're looking for or at least provide some value. But I'm like, who am I to give anyone advice? Right. I just, and that's just the coming becoming process of sitting there like, huh, you know, if it were a sitcom, you could almost just visualize it where I'm sitting there. I'm like, Hey, I know the answer to that. Never in my life had I, had an answer on how someone may be able to, you know, change their life or um, many different problems that uh, one might have. But that to me was the beginning of understanding that my um, life and myself and the way I thought was changing. Even the way I talk um, came from someone hanging up on me and another person asking me, was I sleep when I was making cold calls? And so um, I mumbled and I would listen to people talk over and over again so until I was able to articulate my words. So sometimes when I talk like that, it was because I would practice it on the phone to make sure that I talk like what I thought at the time was a white person because I thought I needed to emulate that. Later on, I found out I was emulating middle-aged white woman culture and kind of figured that that was the wrong thing to do when you get ultimate confidence and uh, knowledge of self, right? Mm -hmm. But at the time, I needed to fit into white culture, and that was talking proper. So I studied and figured out um, I, one word a day I would learn how, mm -hmm. a new word and just write it down, memorize it, repeat it, and try to use it in a sentence. But that process was what helped me be successful in real estate. And from there, after that nine months, it took off and I haven't, I've increased my income every year since. Mm. Mm. That's a uh, congrats on that. that. That's a feat, especially coming out of that market. And, and something, something I know about real estate, I always say like, you know, all real estate agents invest in real estate, successful real estate agents start investing in other businesses. I, I, I don't, mm. I don't know too many they can't. It's like they're addicted to just <laughs> investing in yeah. things. But I think like to your point, you just see the way your brain works, the way your systems work, anything you can identify that can fit in, into some of that comprehension from real estate investing or rehabbing or flips. Yeah. It's like it's an easy pathway. Uh, at what, what point did you break out of real estate and, and start in not just investing in properties and stuff like that, but, but starting to seek just investing in companies outside of real estate? Um, so Early on, I think maybe two years into it, I got involved in network marketing um, because, you know, they're great salespeople and the shit, the dream seems so attainable. Mm -hmm. You can drive the Ferrari in 90 days if you go out and bother to shut out your friends and family until they sign up for your products, right? <laughs> so that was my first kind of... Um, uh, venture into outside of real estate, but that short-lived went back into real estate. And it was actually um, Nipsey Hussle inspired me, my business model, I believe, back in 2014. And I began to change how I saw real estate. No more was I focused on uh, transactions or units, but how much can I net? And so I started to change. I actually completely changed my entire business model to make sure that I netted uh, more off of every transaction than any other agents I knew, um, up to like 10% uh, commissions, whatever, just figuring out that how ways 
to get paid more off a transaction. Um, and then I branched off into investing in real estate. Um, tried a couple other businesses, but they it just um, startups that, you know, mm -hmm. somehow I never got the unicorn. So, um, but each time I try, even the network marketing was an amazing experience because I learned about uh, running a team mm -hmm. and um, how to sell or pitch uh, because that was a hell of a pitch to get, you know, and you need that person to sign up, become a affiliate that day. And so those were transferable skills to real estate um, and a lot of other industries, but that network marketing is a great breeding ground. Um, so I don't regret that. Um, but other than that, it was just investing in real estate, going outside of um, other markets to buy and flip, um, doing workspaces, Airbnbs, uh, tourals. So I just did just whatever I could, but most of it had a close uh, relation to real estate or directly affiliated with real estate. Yeah, that makes sense because it's, I mean, it's just adjacent, right? While you're out there helping looking for properties, you just find see opportunities uh, mm -hmm. and, and the brain starts working. What what was it about Nipsey Hussle that, that, that kind of changed? Just listen to his music or was it his interviews or, or, or all of it? No, it was not his music at all. It was um, in the middle of a song. It's called. Uh, I'll think of it. Okay. But in the middle of a song, he says, if you look at the movie industry, they don't base the success off of how many tickets sold. They base it off of what did it gross, right? And to uh, interpret that is, say, a movie like Batman, they don't say Batman sold this many tickets. It says it grossed this. It would be based off of merch or uh, some sort of memorabilia, all these different ways to take that movie and build ancillary products or businesses around it. Um, and then that's what the movie grosses, right? And so that was, um, and he talked about the business models and how, you know, race to the space and the industrial revolutions. And right now we're in the techno uh, technology revolution and it's the titans of industry tomorrow will be the people that have figured out new business models. Hmm. And it just struck with me. I had two younger people working for me and they thought I was nuts because I was like, hey, we're no longer working with buyers and sellers. <laughs> and they're like, well, who are we working with? And I said, only investors. We're going to invest. We're going to um, work with builders, developers, and investors. And we will take no listings, no buyer appointments. And that seemed scary because it was our bread and butter. Mm -hmm. And it was new, um, audacious. But I figured if I worked with investors that had a brain like mine and we were peers more so than, you know, that whole uh, relationship between um, and being in, on the east side in Bellevue, it was very pretentious, um, very hard to get into. There was a certain uh, persona or I don't know, it was it was not comfortable for a young black man. Uh, but this investor business also gave me the freedom to be more myself. Mm -hmm. And so it was that thing in NIP that I um, ended up changing my business model that same week. 
my brokerage is actually named uh, Prolific, Next Home Prolific, mm. um, in paying homage to Nipsey Hussle because he really had a, a integral part of my business model at that time. Man, I love that. That's, that's dope that you shared that too. Uh, we're big our staff over here. We're big fans of uh, Nipsey from the music and and have done some work with with the cannabis brand that it that his family carries on. But, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, down down there in Cali, the the yeah. people that that grew his original like Marathon OG strain, we we work with them. Okay, um, and it's just I was just telling my video guy the other day because you know we're we're all big Nipsey fans, and I, we we're just watching. I don't know if you saw the documentary they put out on mm -hmm. his the, the new. They just opened up the dispensary. The family did, yep. but we. You know, from being fans of the music to hear him talking about, you know, rolling up Marathon OG before you could eat. It wasn't a legal product. It wasn't even like something mm -hmm. you could just go buy even in the streets. And then we were in L.A. one time and at the store and we're like, hey, where can we get this Marathon OG? Like, is it anywhere? They, <laughs> the dude behind the counter who ends up being in the documentary I just saw. You know, I don't, I've never yeah. seen him outside of that. He gave us a card for this place. It was called I don't want to say the business, but it wasn't a weed business. It was a mm -hmm. different kind of company. And it was just a, you know, just the hood spot, just the the pop up, you know, underground weed store. And you go in there and they got T-shirts and V-necks and the different sizes. And it's like a dub price, an eighth price, half ounce price or some shit. Yeah, I've been bought it and it was rolled up in a CD sleeve with the marathon, like a blank, clear mm -hmm. CD sleeve. And when we're watching the documentary, they're they like, oh, back in the day, we were just hustling stuff out of the CD sleeve yeah. so to hear about the music, to try it in that model, to then work with the actual licensed producer putting out his grow. I was just telling my guys, like, we really seen that. It was just crazy to, to just from a fan, right? I had nothing to do with it business-wise, but just to be a part of that and see that mm -hmm. whole rise and then watch that documentary and be like, damn, I saw that at every at every step That's of the way, crazy. man. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely impressive. Um, he's a huge inspiration to me after that. I learned a lot more about his business acumen and his process and just how uh, brilliant he was. And um, I saw a lot of similarities um, and I've read hundreds of books, been to many trainings, personally mentored by Darren Hardy, but I've learned the most, I would say tangible uh, pieces of wisdom or uh, knowledge between Jay-Z and Nipsey Hussle mm. um, about my business. And literally, like, I, it's hard to imagine how so many people miss it. So many different um, principles and things um, that you can apply to business or um, in, even in your personal life that they've been explaining and really articulating for so long. Mm -hmm. um, I learned the hard way what he meant. Uh, Jay-Z and Reasonable Doubt talked about chains are cool to cop, but more important uh, lawyer fees. Mm -hmm. And had I not had one of the best lawyers in the state in Bellevue while I was doing real estate, I would have lost a lot of money. But having this at the forefront of my uh, repertoire of tools helped me. And looking back, he said that on his first album. And I'm like, wow, that was so profound. Now I tell people this and they still won't listen. But I'm like, yeah. hey, this is part of business, especially if you're a marginalized community or someone that's a target. You have to have a good attorney, right? That's just one example of 
so many things I get from uh, listening to their music or and I, I consume all of their interviews, books, documentaries, whatever it is, because there's so many different uh, pieces of wisdom and jewels that you can, you know, are applicable to different businesses, not just the music industry, not just real estate. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and those are those are two two of my most listened artists right there. Hove, okay. Hove and Nip are, are two of the ones that I listen to the most, and very much for the same reason. I mean, they make music that's great, but like if you and they say some hard ass bars, but like you said, like even that that lawyer fees one is like he said some hard ass bar in like '96. That's like mm-hmm. a, a business print. You know, one of the core principles of business. Yeah. It's a way that's, that could be understood and, and, and learned from. And that's what I, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of those. But, you know, on, on the topic of like, you know, coming from a marginalized community in, in the space of cannabis, right? Like the black population, I think oh, there's different numbers. 13% of the, of the U.S. or something like that is black. I've done some, stu- read some studies on cannabis use where they say it's statistically insignificant uh use percentage based on race, right? Like every race, the same percentage of that race pretty much uses not just cannabis, but drugs in general um, at around, you know, there's no difference, right? No, you're not more likely to do drugs based on, on your race. But when you look at the ownership of cannabis, right, it's like under 2%, you know, there's a varying numbers you've seen out there. It's 1.3 to 0.9 to 1.7. So I see varying numbers. I don't know what's actually what, but it's under 2%. What does it mean to be uh, you know, an African-American owner in an industry where the, the statistics, I mean, when you look at the war on drugs, lean so far heavily one way, and then it, on the other end of the spectrum in, in legal ownership, they lean so much more the other way. So what, is, what does it mean to you to, to be a part of like the positive statistic, but what's that statistic also, also mean to you as well? Um, I think it, cannabis is one area, right? And it gets a lot of publicity and attention maybe because it's a new space, but that's not the only industry where it's heavily weighted on the opposite end. Right. Um, so for me, what it means is, um, when I opened the, you know, only black brokerage on the east side, it's more of a beacon of hope of like, hey, let's let's march and same things, uh, putting the information out. I'm here to show the way, show everyone. I, I've always been open book and, um, you know, there's a lot of people that charge for the information that um, I give away, but it, I just hope that it gives me enough of a platform to help and gather some more um, like-minded individuals that can get into this. The money for me, um, I came up with all the the money on my own to buy the store. I sold some of my um, rental properties. And the astonishing part about that is I've been trying to raise this money for two years to buy other stores. Every time they would come up, I would gather people. I would sit down explain it to him in detail about, hey, here's a license as a state that's opening up. I have the inside. I have, I can get us in. We can get a license here. Here's the take. Here's what it takes. Um, here's a store that's for sale. If it's, if 10 of us bring, you know, a hundred grand, we can buy this store, you know, just, just really, really trying to get people to, uh, gather it's 
it all it we're I'm really trying to be careful what I say because I don't want this to come up come across as offensive or um undermine any other struggles or things that we've been through. But at this point, there is no more uh there's not much excuse left, right? It's it's about us um getting together. Group group economics, one of the things that Nipsey uh, spoke about a lot. Um, if we can gather our um, resources, pull our resources, our, our genes, our smarts, our um, influence together, there's this industry is wide open right now, I believe, until it goes federally legal. And I feel like this is just such a opportune time for Black people to finally um, come together, pull our resources together, and create a collective identity where we can, you know, enter this space. And what a lot of people don't mention, or maybe I am mistaken by this, but every person that I know, white, Jewish, Chinese, however, Indian, they've done it one way, and that is coming together. There is no lone rangers. We have this misguided perception that these people that we see on the forefront or the face or the CEOs or the founder of the company did it themselves. Um, it makes me kind of an anomaly that I did it myself, but it's because I had no choice, right? Um, it's way harder. Um, and you end up like in a very um, vulnerable position for me to be the only one to be alone, my own money, which is not very much compared to, you know, say five uh, white guys that brought their money together. And somehow we, we're, we're just missing that. There's nothing missing. We have everything we need to enter the cannabis industry in a forceful major way, but it won't be done alone. Mm. It's accumulatively. If we were to get together, establish group economics, some principles, we have more trust, more camaraderie, where we can actually believe um, that there is hope, right? Hopelessness, I think, it runs rampant also in the community that prevents us from moving forward. But the main thing is this lack of group economics. And if, you know, if there's people that are watching this that they have a little bit of money, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. I've seen it happen in real estate all the time. OPM, um, mm. it, it just is part of the most successful wealthy people's business strategy. There's crowdfunding, there's, you know, the raising, fund, there's just, it's just how it happens. And until we get this, come together and stop trying to do it alone, we'll continue to perpetuate this same sort of atrocity instead of saying, okay, I, I trust this person and I'm going to put up my money. Um, unfortunately, if it were, you know, another culture, they have no problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I've witnessed it for many, many years. So that's what it means to me. It's not like I'm standing at the mountaintop really ready to celebrate and count a bunch of money. Now I'm like, hey, 
Now do I have someone's attention? Now can we do this now for the sake of our generations to come, my kids? Do we always have to be last? Mm, he's spitting gospel right now, man. What, what's what's the uh, what's the importance of, of ownership for you? Like just in general, the, the theme of ownership as well, not just necessarily ownership in the cannabis space. Um, so I hope you don't mind since you brought it up. I'll have to uh, continue to quote Jay-Z and Nip. I'll run it. Um, Jay-Z talks about uh, what's free. They let you run a checkup, but they never give you leverage. Um, without leverage, it does not matter how successful you are as a real estate agent, how successful you are as a cannabis owner. If you don't have leverage or some sort of backing or something that helps, um, it's like a, to me, it's like a foundation, right? It's flimsy and it won't stand if you don't have some sort of support system. Um, so when I talk about ownership and, uh, leverage, it's more so that I can pass this on to my kids and that I can have something that I don't have to continue to work. I work like a pit bull right now, day and night, so that I don't have to work, right? So that I can finally breathe and be able to change the trajectory of the Black American experience because it's sad. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where I did not really, I was not like a champion for the cause. I was born black, so you're always going to be a supporter of the cause. You're always going to, yeah. But when it changed for me was after I got a little success and they attacked me. And I really don't want to go into it because no one will really believe to what level this sort of um, institutional racism existed within Windermere. If I go ahead and name a few names. Um, <laughs> But it was it was sad and tragic. And guess what? I couldn't do nothing because I can't beat them. I can't fight them. I don't have, I mean, call the NAACP, Al Sharpton. Like, I'm literally out here fighting. Uh, I had to fight a rape case. Someone randomly says that I raped him. So I had to spend $80,000 to fight that. There was, we can name a host full of black people, white people, a lot of people that did not have access to $80,000 and probably in prison right now because of the lack of funds, right? Um, I would get complaints to the DOL consistently. Um, I would have my things uh, vandalized. It was literally like, wow, I can't believe no one's happy that I'm doing well out here. Mm -hmm. This is weird. And then you look around and you don't have the support of your community or anyone else. And so it was lonely. So all of a sudden, that became my passion is to go out and find another brilliant, young, ambitious black man like me that has no options or no hope and, you know, provide that hope so they don't have to experience what I went through. I mean, and I, it literally tenses me up and gets me so heated when I think about like, you know, all I was doing was doing my business and I, and I will say I didn't take crap from people. That was the thing is I would not let them bully me. And it got to a point where I started to change that. And I used, used to say, you know what, I might as well, I better keep my mouth shut and let them mm -hmm. do whatever they can to me because me speaking up or complaining only gets me in more, you know,
trouble and I just want to make my, I just want to feed my family. Mm-hmm. Why do I need to be, you know, targeted like this? Uh, but it was mainly because I didn't take shit. I wasn't the token stereotypical um, black guy that they let into high society, right? It was more of unapologetically me inside your space. And that was not acceptable. Hmm. I like that. So you said you didn't, you didn't, you didn't come out born for the cause. Just life experience kind of shaped you to, to see more, uh, see more of this stuff, and then it inspired you to kind of speak out, or like you said, not even necessarily speak out, but just be a beacon of of what can be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because it's one of the things that uh, we find a lot. Fifty Cent talked about it is people think I'm trying to pull a fast one on them. But I'm like, come here, meet me. I'll show you exactly how to do this. I won't charge you any money and I'll guide you along. I'll mentor you and I'll make sure you have everything you need to be successful. And what do they think? Hmm. Must be a scam. Hmm. Must be something in it. Right. Like it's, it's hard for people to believe that I actually have an innate desire to help. And, you know, to me, it's, per- it's a personal passion. I really want to be able to have another black man in Washington open a store that I can help guide or, you know, someone gets in real estate, does successful, be able to quit their job, create general generational wealth, passive income. Those things are, you know, money, making money is obviously um, more um, necessity. But for me, where I find the uh, fulfillment and sort of excitement is helping other young people that come from similar backgrounds, right? That it, it's just hard to believe for people to believe that I actually want to help them. Absolutely. I lo- I, man, I love that. So, you know, pack, t- tie it back in before, before we get out of here. You said the store grand opening two weeks, second week of August. You, is there an official date on that? You said it was the second week of August. No, it's not an official date, but um, okay. yeah, I'm working with a, um, an event planner right now. I want to make sure that it's uh, uh, something for the community that they'd be proud of. So Awesome. And then we, we are, we're on Highway 99 in Everett, Pleasant Trees, opening second week of August. Currently, we're uh, operating as local routes Highway 99. We're open right now. We're open, open right now. Grand opening is the tent. So we can say people still pull up and support local roots on 99 out here in Everett, switching over to Pleasant Trees here shortly. Definitely, I, I'm, I'll come out. You know, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll come show out for the for the grand opening. Come out and support, sure. man. All right. You got a slide. Well, I appreciate you, Kenny. I really appreciate you coming on here and, and, and shedding some some wisdom, some insight on your journey. And there was just a ton of game in here for uh, I think anyone looking looking to learn and grow in business. And that's that's one of the beautiful things and, and I like about this platform is you know, a lot of some of the guests I do are in cannabis, some of the people I do are in music. I always try to get something from each guest that whether you're in cannabis or you don't give a shit about cannabis, but you're in mute, whatever you're in, you got a business, you got a hustle, you're an entrepreneur, there's some sort of game you can extract. And uh, I, I think you gave out a couple gallons of game today. Appreciate that. I uh, appreciate you having me on here. And hopefully we'll have a follow up where I can tell you about those people that I found to inspire and put in good positions. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're waiting on it, man. It, it'll all do time. So this is the RMR podcast, episode 45. 
Kenny Pleasant of Pleasant Trees opening up here in Washington here soon. We'll see you guys next time.